0: Pastor here, and uh, this is a family Sunday, so I guess that's probably why they gave it to me. Um, so for the kids in the room, welcome. We're happy that you're here. For those of you that were visiting family and got dragged to church this morning, we're happy that you are here. For the rest of you, you guys are all right, but you're always here, so uh, I'm not that excited about you guys. Um, so this is a this is a funny Sunday. You know, New Year's is not typically a Sunday. And so it's oftentimes a confusing thing for the pastoral staff to figure out what to do with New Year's Sunday. And kind of all around the country, I can imagine that there are youth pastors preaching because the senior pastor either is tired or doesn't want to do it or out of town or whatever. Uh, Not Rob, though. He's here. So, and... uh, that that Sunday is going to be about reading your Bible, you know, because uh, it seems like an obvious theme to start the year off with. And here at Calvary Chapel, we are two for two also. You know, we are going to be doing that exact same thing. But, you know, it's, as I've been in ministry for a number of years now, it's been kind of a common theme for me to advocate for people, you know, at the beginning of the year, get in, get in the Word, get in God's Word, read the Bible more than you did last year. Because, you know, universally that's kind of a, a common theme for anyone who has a relationship with God. We all know that we should be reading the Bible more, and we all struggle to read the Bible more, so it seems like a kind of obvious choice and obvious thing to advocate for people to do at the beginning of the year. But what I've noticed more recently as a pastor is that sometimes when I tell people, "Hey, read your Bible," that's not really a, a directed enough instruction for that to be a valuable thing for you because oftentimes, you know, you'll hear, "Read your Bible," but you know, what am I supposed to be doing when I'm reading my Bible? How am I supposed to be reading it? What am I supposed to be getting out of it as I read it? Those kinds of questions are often not really talked about, and it can create a lot of confusion. In fact, when I, I used to work at a church in Ohio a few years ago, I guess many years ago at this point, and uh, I was in a conversation at one point with one of the other staff members even, and they were telling me that they had been challenged to read something new that they hadn't read before in their devotional life, and so they had picked Jeremiah. And they were asking me, they were just like, I'm, I'm just not sure what I'm supposed to be getting out of this. You know, I'm, I'm reading for application. I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to be doing in response to these things. And I said to them, oh, that's because Jeremiah is not about you. Jeremiah is about Israel, you know, and it's about uh, God's relationship with Israel and the things that happen with Israel point forward towards Christ. But it's not really about you and you having to figure out, okay, what do I need to go do this week kind of thing? And for that person, that changed everything. They were like, oh, now this book makes sense. Now that I know what kind of the instructions about this specific book is, now I know what I'm supposed to be doing with it. And so I want to give you guys kind of a tool set and a lens that would hopefully guide you enough that when you go and open your Bible this year, it would be more fruitful for you, that it would be something that you would be able to benefit from more because you've had a little bit more of a directed instruction. And so, uh, you know, I've had an interesting experience in the last few months in that every kind of podcast I've been listening to, every sermon I've been listening to, all these different books I've been reading for, you know, subjects and podcasts and churches that, you know, are not related at all and are not about the same thing usually or, or have any sort of kind of interrelation at all, all seem to be referencing the same concept. And I think when you kind of get uh, something like that repeated in your life in, you know, multiple avenues, I think that's God's way of saying to us, hey, here's something that I think you could benefit from. You know, here's something that I think if we went down this path of learning about this thing— it would be really beneficial to our relationship together. And this would be really helpful for our relationship together. And this would expand your knowledge of me. And so that concept that has been coming up in all these different venues is something called intrapersonal communication. So interpersonal communication. And sometimes they call it inner dialogue. Or at like the most pop level, it's called self-talk. And what that is, is it's a, this recognition that each of us has an inner dialogue that is taking place both consciously and subconsciously within ourselves. It's something that is kind of a 24-hour uh, thing that is going on in your mind, your heart, your spirit, about you and about how you see the world. And thus it becomes a lens that you live your life out of and a way that you see the world and you respond to the world. And it becomes something that you look at and you say, okay, because of this inner dialogue that I have, I, I see things this way, I respond to things this way, I live my life a certain way. And the reason that it has that effect on you is because self-talk is concerned with four big questions. And those four big questions are, who am I, where do I belong, what is my purpose, and what is God like? Who am I, where do I belong, what is my purpose, and what is God like? Or to put it in different terms, they are questions about identity, they are questions about community, they are questions about life mission, and they are questions about God. And the way that you answer those four questions is going to have an impact on how you see yourself, how you see the world, and ultimately how you relate to the world around you. And at a you know, purely psychological level, what they've done and what they've seen in these different studies is that people that have what they deem you know, healthy self-talk or healthy inner dialogue are people who tend to be more successful than their peers, tend to be happier than their peers, tend to be more adaptable, tend to be better equipped and have uh, longer lasting relationships and healthier relationships. They're less anxious, all that kind of stuff. So it's all positive things when you have healthy inner dialogue. But people who have what they deem as negative inner dialogue, they tend to notice that they are less successful than their peers, less happy than their peers, more prone to depression, more prone to anxiety, more prone to a number of, of negative qualities. and. The great irony with self-talk, for as much as it's about you and what you are thinking and how you're perceiving things, is that self-talk is not something that you develop within yourself. It's something that you receive from other things around you. You have to receive your self-talk from the world around you, from things that people say to you, from things that people don't say to you, from things that you read or things that you hear or things that you see on TV. You know, Self-talk has to be received It is a reaction to what you're experiencing in the world. And so, you know, let me give this at a, at, a, at a kid level since we got some of them in the room. If you are on the playground and you know, they're picking teams for kickball, right, and you get picked last, you're gonna assume that you're not very good at kickball, right, like it starts to create a dialogue about yourself as you are receiving this message from other people. Okay, so, so self-talk, just so it's clear, it's about those four big questions and it has to be received. And you might be sitting here thinking, okay, so what does this have to do with church and my relationship with God? This all sounds very psychological. That's not what I'm here for. And the reason that it's so important for us as Christians is because twofold. One, the gospel is a proclaimed message. You know, the gospel is one of, that, one of those messages that is being proclaimed to you that is going to help you answer those four questions. And so when you think about the gospel, the gospel literally means good news. And that word gospel existed in the Roman culture before Christ was even on the scene, and it was used to talk about the Roman Empire, emperors and what they were doing for their nation. And as they would defeat enemies or as they would take over other lands or as they would do different things, they would send out good news messages, gospel messages to their people, and they would say, this is what Caesar did on your behalf. You know, so Caesar took over Sweden, you know, meatballs and Ikea furniture for everybody. You know, we all can now benefit from those things, and this is the new thing that Caesar did for you. Now live in light of that. Enjoy this thing that Caesar's done for you. Enjoy the peace that he's brought and this prosperity that he's bought. And the gospel writers saw that as this is the perfect metaphor to talk about what Jesus did. Jesus came down here, but instead of defeating a country, he defeated things like sin and death and reconciled us to God and that message is proclaimed to us that we might then accept it and receive it in our hearts and then live in light of it. So in one, in one reason that self-talk is important for us is because we have to realize the gospel is one of those proclaimed messages to us and it's trying to guide us towards a relationship with Christ. But the other thing is if you think about those four questions, those are four questions that the gospel is deeply concerned with answering. The gospel is deeply concerned with answering what is God like, who am I, Where do I belong, and what is my purpose? But it wants to answer them through the lens of the gospel. You know, it wants the gospel to be the anchor that you look to and you say, okay, I know who God is like, or what God is like, because of the gospel, because of what I saw him do on the cross for me. We start with Jesus, and that is our perfect revelation of what God is like to us, that as we see him, as we know him, as we understand him, we understand God, because he is God living among us, incarnate among us. The gospel also is deeply concerned with identity. You know, when you make Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of your life, several things happen. You become uh, raised to a new life, you are a new creation, you are God's child. All of those kinds of metaphors that Paul and the New Testament writers use to describe what happens in the gospel are all identity statements. And you are given a new identity. The book of Ephesians is deeply concerned with people who love Christ, understanding that you've been given a new identity and so now live in light of that new identity of who you are. Because of the gospel, you know the, the funny dynamic of the gospel is that it is a personal choice between one person and God, but then as that person has made that choice and entered into a relationship with God, all of a sudden they are forced into a relationship with everyone else who has that relationship with God. And we call that church, and you're all here this morning experiencing that. You know, it's all these people now have a new community, a new place of belonging that also ultimately exists For the people who don't have a relationship with god that the church would go into the world and take that proclaimed message to other people and establish more people in that relationship with god and so you see how the gospel has big answers for those questions you know it is something that we are all thinking about it is something that we are all dealing with it is something that we're all recognizing and we're all going to answer those questions in various ways but the only real answer to those questions can be found in the gospel and that's why we need to realize that this is something that's happening for all of us, but the only way that we're going to get the answers we're really looking for is by turning to the gospel. And my encouragement for you is to do that, is to take this year and get into God's word and learn to approach God's word trying to find answers to those four questions, essentially. That as you are getting into God's word and hearing the gospel proclaimed to you through God's word, you would be developing gospel-based self-talk, self-talk Gospel-based inner dialogue, and it's important that we get that right, because when we don't get it right, it can set us on a trajectory totally away from God or totally missing God. You know, one of the one of the crazier stories within Christianity is about C.S. Lewis, and if you don't know C.S. Lewis, uh, kind of in a biographic biographical sense, you know, when he had grown up in the church, but at a really early age, his mom got cancer, and He went to church, and he was unsure what to do. And and well-intentioned people in the church told him, if you pray, she'll get better. And he prayed, and she got worse. And they said, well, if you just had more faith, she'll for sure get better. And he thought he had as much faith as he could, and she died. And that started a journey for him where he walked away from the church, walked away from Christianity, walked into atheism, saying, if God, he said, first of all, I don't think God exists, but even if he did exist, he clearly does not care about us. You know, and if we approach God if we approach those questions of what is God like and have the wrong answer or have the wrong starting point about how God's supposed to work, then it's going to set our our life in a in a totally direction a direction totally missing God's intention for our lives. So we have to get these questions uh, questions right. And so the way I want to do this is I want to just look at two passages this morning that are very similar and just use them to encourage you to get into God's word. So our first passage is Psalm 19, and, you know, the reason I chose two passages, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament, is even though they're going to say basically the same idea, they are talked about in different ways. You know, the Greeks uh, like to describe God in terms of ideas, you know, that's where we get ideas like omniscience, omnipotence, immanence, transcendence, those kinds of terms that are very doctrinal sounding. And we as modern people gravitate towards those terms, and those terms are are accurate and valuable. But for a Hebrew person, God is described in, in images. You know, what is God like? He is a rock. He is my fortress. He's my portion forever. And God wants us to have both ways of describing himself, that we would get full pictures of him, that we would get more accurate pictures of him by the way that we understand him in both ways. And also for some of us, We more connect with God uh, in an ideas way, and some of us connect more with God from a creative standpoint. And So I want uh, both types of brains to be able to to appreciate this. So Psalm 19, I heard a lot of pages turn, so I'm I'm sure most of you are there. But for those of you that are not there, just kind of one last kind of fact about self-talk that is also part of the reason why I chose this for a family Sunday. They say that at age six is really when someone starts to develop their self-talk. You know, that at at age six, we start to feel this need to have a narrative about ourselves and a narrative about the world. And from ages six to 25, 26 is when that narrative is being developed, you know, and that those are the most impressionable years for a person because that's when they're answering those big four questions. And at about age 30, it really solidifies, you know, that after 30, a person's self-talk doesn't change very much. And that the only way that it starts to change is through, you know, some sort of life upheaval, you know, the death of someone, uh, cancer diagnosis, loss of a job, you know, a big event, or some really deep inward probing like therapy or mentoring or something like that. But from 30 and younger is when someone is answering those questions. 30, uh, 31 and older, I guess, is when it's really hard to start answering those questions in different ways. And for those of you that are parents that are in the room, just to be aware, Man, it is really important that I am teaching my kids, proclaiming to my kids, this is what the gospel has to say about who you are, where you belong, what your mission is, and ultimately who God is. And that that's something that we as a church community also need to be actively investing in our young ones to know this is what the Bible has to say about those big four questions that you're thinking about without even realizing it. So that's why it's important as well. So Psalm 19, uh, we're going to kind of take it in, in broad strokes, but the first six verses say, the heavens declare the glory of God, and sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes, throughout, goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a, set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heart, from its heat. So David starts this psalm, and he starts it with this description of creation. And the interesting thing about how he starts the psalm, though, is he says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the word that he uses for God there in Hebrew is the word el. And el is basically the most generic word you can use for God. You know, it's in the Hebrew language, it's the least specific word that you can use for God. It's trying to convey God in a generic sense. And what David is saying is he's saying, as you look at creation, you will see things that point you towards God in a generic way, in a basic way. You know, you look at the things that have been created, you look at humanity, you look at all these things that happen in life. I don't know if you guys have noticed, there's been this thing falling out of the sky lately. It's called rain. You know, we don't have very much of it around here. But David would say, you look at something like that, you look at the seasons, you look at how things are on this, on the, you know, we're on this planet that's in the perfect part of the solar system to be conducive to life and there's no place else in the solar system that we know of that's like that. You know, you look at all those things and you say, this really helps me see that there has to be a God. You know, and we call this common grace. It's this idea that God has permeated himself throughout all of creation, throughout all of life, in ways that would help anyone as they start to ask some questions see there has to be a God. The only way that this could work is if there was a gun. And, you know, we live in a in kind of a weird time where uh, faith and then things like science or philosophy or are, are seen as like mutually exclusive from one another, but that didn't used to be the case. You know, it used to be the case that, you know, when people s- discovered new things in science, they said, wow, this helps me understand how amazing God must be you know, that he could create something like this, or how this complex thing that I've just discovered, only God could have done that. You know, that that used to be how people approached science, or how people approached philosophy, was that okay, because I'm, I'm understanding these things, I'm understanding how we relate to God more or how we relate to one another more as people being made in the image of God. And then, you know, with things like art, we were, it was seen as this is what it, the creative extension of what it means to be made in the image of God, that just as God created, I have the opportunity to create beautiful things. And we've transitioned to being a, a subculture that tends to think we can't have those things at the same time, but that didn't used to be the case. And in fact, as we read this psalm and as you read other, others of David's psalms, David wants us to look at creation and say, this should lead us to God. You know, in psalm, uh, psalm 8, David asks this question, he says, you know, as I look at all of creation, God, why did you choose humans to be the thing that you were mindful of? Why did you put humanity at the top of the creative order? All those kinds of things. And that question ultimately leads him into a psalm of worship of God's majesty. You know, so the idea that David's getting at is that you look at, you look at what God has made and it should lead you to realizing there is a God. But he's very clear to say, it's just El. You know, it just leads you to believe that there is a God in some sort of generic sense. But notice the transition he's going to make in verse seven through 11. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than are they than fine gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So, in the first part of the passage, God was referred to as El. But in the second part of the passage, God is referred to as Lord. And chances are, uh, this is a pretty common way of doing it in, in your Bible, where it says Lord, it's not like normally how you would spell Lord, it's Lord and it's all caps. You know, it's all capital letters. And that's kind of the English way of signifying that in the Hebrew, this is where God's covenant name, Yahweh, is used. It's our way of signifying that when David says this here, it's that he's using the name of God that was revealed to, to Moses for the first time. Because when God called, uh, called Abram and said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to make a covenant with you, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you lots of descendants. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a blessing to all the other nations of the world. He says to Moses, to Abraham, I just revealed myself as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But to you, I'm revealing myself as Yahweh. And what it is, is it's God's most intimate name. It's God's covenant name. It's God's name that he kept secret from Abraham, but then revealed to Israel. And it became the promise to Israel that, hey, the reason you know that I'm going to lead you out of Egypt is because I gave you my name. It's because I gave you the most intimate thing about me. And David is saying, okay, we can know about God generically when we look at creation, when we look at experience. But we can know about God intimately when we get into his law, when we get into his testimonies, when we get into his precepts, when we get into his commands, which is David's Old Testament way of saying when we get into God's word. When you get into God's word, you know him intimately. You know him in his most revealed sense. Creation will teach you about him in part. Creation will teach you, experience will teach you about him in a, in a minuscule way. But the word will teach you about him fully, will teach you about him in his most intimate way. And so what David is getting at is that you know, as we think about those big four questions, well, what is God like? You're gonna start to find that out as you get into God's word. And as you find out who God is like and what God is like, you will see how that leads into those other three questions. And so when David says things like, you know, the fear of the Lord is clean, you know, enduring forever, his precepts are good, you know, those kinds of things, and you start to say, okay, well, what does that mean that I'm like? Well, Israel, when God made a covenant with them, part of the covenant was the idea was was that they were gonna be an on-display people to the rest of the nations. That what God was doing with them and the relationship that they had with God was going to be on display for everyone else to see That as people looked at Israel, they would say, wow, look at what kind of God they have and what kind of God they worship and what kind of God they serve, and we want that same thing. That Israel would be a beacon to the world and that the rest of the world would be drawn to them. And because of that on-display nature, there was also kind of dynamics that went into what they were going to be like. Their community was founded on the idea of love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so the commands that they were given were commands that were ultimately for other people's good, to take care of the widow and the orphan, to take care of the sojourner, take care of the foreigner, take care of all these other people. And it was these commands that ultimately created this identity for Israel, created this community for Israel, created this mission for Israel, that were all centered on their relationship with God. And this is why David sees uh, knowing God's word as so valuable, because it answers those four big questions for them. This is what we as a nation are supposed to be like. And so that's, that's passage one, that this idea that you see as you just get into God's word, even in the Old Testament, they have this theme of as you come to know God, you know who you are, you know what your community is supposed to be like, and you know what your mission is like. But now let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter three. And uh, as you're turning there, for those of you that are kind of unfamiliar with the New Testament storyline, you know, you have Jesus being crucified, and then resurrected, and then ascending to heaven. And then the church has started, and Jesus sends out apostles. And the apostle that was chosen to go to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, is a, is a guy named Paul. And Paul went around on all these missionary journeys, planning churches, and much of the New Testament letters that we have, many of the New Testament letters, I should say, uh, were written by Paul. But, you know, Paul also found guys that he chose to invest in and mentor in and taught how to be pastors and this guy Timothy was one of those guys you know and Timothy had grown up in a in a in a household where his dad was Greek and his mom was Jewish and so he knew the Old Testament and Paul ultimately came alongside him and and showed him the gospel and and mentored him and taught him how to be a pastor and ultimately left him in charge of one of the churches that he had planted and you know he's kind of the main pastor there and and Paul's written this letter to him before and, and now Paul's kind of at the end of his life and we think that 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter or at least one of the last letters and he's kind of writing his final words to this guy that has really been like a son to him, that has been kind of his, his spiritual successor, you know, and he's, he's writing kind of his final thoughts to him and his final encouragements and at the beginning of chapter 3, he says, you know, the world is going to get darker and darker, you know, people are going to do more ungodly things as life goes on. But then he says to Timothy, you, Timothy, cling to what I've told you. You know, cling to what I've taught you. God has been investing in you at an early age to know his words, to know his commands, to know what's important, and cling to that, know that. And then in verse 16, he says this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent competent equipped for every good work. So he starts and he says, all scripture is breathed out. And he's drawing on this idea of inspiration, that there are human authors, there are people who are regular humans who are writing scripture, but really the person who stands behind what they're writing is God. That God is the real author, that this came out of his mouth, that these are the words that he has for his people to know him. That this is God's words. These are not just words by some random guy. These are the words from the Creator of the universe, and then he says, "All of this is profitable, or all of this is beneficial." And he lists uh, a couple things, and they all kind of hang on that this is profitable or this is beneficial statement. And so the first he says is for teaching, and when he's when he's saying teaching, he's got in mind this idea that uh, more of a doctrinal type idea that things that explain God and explain the world, things like his attributes and his character and how humans are made in the image of God. And and these really start to answer the four big questions in a a more doctrinal standpoint. And the second category is reproof, though. And reproof is the idea that, okay, because we've lived outside of relationship with God as as a species for so long, we have developed values, we have developed ideas that are contrary to God's ways. They are not we're not naturally going to choose God's things. You know, we're not naturally going to choose God's desires. And so we start to develop these habits and these beliefs that ultimately God has to come in and say, no, you guys have been doing this the wrong way, and I need to correct that. I need to change that. That's what reproof is. Reproof is this analogy, you know, the, the analogy would be uh, the way some ways that we are living are like a cancer, and reproof is the scalpel that cuts out that cancer. And so, you know, when we, when we look at culture, we have to realize that, culture is not naturally going to go God's way. It's actually going to naturally go the opposite. And we could, you know, pick any number of things that we see in culture as being going the opposite of God's direction. But the, the one that sticks out to my in my mind is that, you know, we live in a ultra-consumer society. And when you live in an ultra-consumer society, the two most important things are functionality and pragmatism. If it works, it must be right. And that leads us into asking questions about functionality and pragmatic things, and leads us down a path that makes us think contrary to what God thinks. And so that's why, you at, why someone would ask a question, is a fetus human? You know, and we start to define humanity based around functionality, and whether uh, something can function on its own, whether it has the same thinking capacities. You even see a slippery slope within that of uh, defining handicapped and mentally handicapped people as lesser than human, because their functionality is not the same, and they're not practically the same as everybody else. You know, in a, in a consumer society, we look at marriage, and we say marriage is about being happy and being fulfilled and being, uh, you know, getting the things that you want. And as soon as those things stop happening, you're free to cut bait and to leave and to get out of there. And God says, no, 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 you no. Know, humans are made in the image of God. Marriage is a reflection of what happens in the gospel. The more you understand the gospel, the more you understand a marriage, and the more you understand a marriage, the more you understand the gospel. And God says, you know, the reason why divorce is not an option is because I don't want you to get the picture that I would ever divorce you. You know, he is trying to convey these ideas into our culture that, you know, we, uh, we value things differently than God, and God has to come in and say, no, this is, this is truly what my values are, and we need to change these things about you. Another one that really uh, kind of hit me in the face a couple months ago was this statement from this commentary by a guy named Bruce Walkie. And Bruce Walkie is this, you know, big-name big Hebrew scholar. You know, if you uh, have an NASB Bible, he translated your Old Testament NASB. You know, so he's kind of a big deal. And he says that if you read the Old Testament and you read the words uh, righteous and wicked, the way that you should read them from a Hebrew standpoint is that the righteous person is a person who disadvantages, disadvantages himself for the community, Whereas the wicked person sees his or her resources as belonging just to them. The righteous person sees what's been given to him as now they have a responsibility to others, and the wicked person sees what's been given to them as that they now have a responsibility just to themselves. And when you live in an ultra-consumer society, who do you have the ultimate responsibility to? You have it to yourself. And God's values would be, no, it's the opposite. That's why the church exists for the people who aren't here, is that we should be taking what's been given to us and extending it to others. And so we start to see that God has to come in and correct all of us in a different way. But then Paul says that after reproof, there is something called correction. And the word that he uses there has the root ortho. You know, so orthodontist straightens your teeth out, orthopedist straightens out your spine, orthodoxy is, is right or straight uh, thinking. And the idea here is you know, that uh, after God has told us what is wrong, he still wants to fix that for us. He doesn't want to say, this is wrong, now you're on your own. He wants to straighten it out for you. If if reproof is the scalpel, uh, correction is the splint. You know, It is the repair job. Eugene O'Neill said, man is born broken. He lives by mending. God's grace is the glue. That's the idea that we, yeah, we're all broken. Yeah, we're all making mistakes. But as we come to know God's grace, those things change about us. Those things get fixed in us. Because God's idea is that he doesn't want to just take you out of Egypt. He also wants to lead you into the promised land. He wants to change these things about you. And then the final phrase is that, uh, which is training in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped. And the idea here is, okay, now that you've been corrected, you know, now you've learned what's wrong is wrong, and you've learned what's right is right. Now when you put them together, what does that look like? How do you live that out? And that's what he's talking about here. That as we come to know God, and we come to know what's important to him, and we come to know his commands, that we would be convicted by those and take those out into the world. And, you know, you see in in the church that, you know, there have been great people who have come up throughout, you know, historical Christianity who, because of their convictions, have done things that have gone radically against culture. You know, this guy named Wilbur Wilberforce, that uh, because of his study on the image of God, he was deeply convicted that he had to end the slave trade, that the church had a responsibility to stand up against slavery. You know, a guy like Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the 30s. Hitler was starting to come into power, was starting to come into the political scene, and he said, no, like, this guy stands for everything against the gospel, and I will do everything I can to fight what this guy stands for. Is their convictions about what God had taught them that led them into actively living out a life that would oppose the world's values. And the idea here that I'm just getting at, is that I hope you see that as I get into God's word, you start to learn things that answer those questions. You start to find out what God is like, you start to find out who you are in light of a relationship with God, you start to find out where your place is, and you ultimately start to find out what God's desires for your life are. And my encouragement to you would be that this next year, that you would make that a goal, to find out answers to those questions by getting into God's word, that the lens that you start to read scripture with is that I have this, these big four questions that I've been asking and answering and they've been guiding my life but I need to find my real answers to those questions in the gospel. And the only way that I'm gonna find them in the gospel is if I get into God's words. So I just wanna leave you uh, with some stats that hopefully would encourage you. And uh, then one last thing. So you can read the Bible in a speaking rate in about 80 hours. So you know, we all read a little faster in our heads, but if you were to read out loud, you read a little bit slower. So 80 hours to read the Bible. So that means that you could read the Bible four times this next year if you read an hour a day. Uh, if you only read half hour a day, twice, if you read 15 minutes a day, once, and you would actually still have 45 days with like a 15 minute period each day to go back over some things. You know. But if you just read 13 minutes a day this next year, you can read the Bible in a year. It can, it'll take you 365 days, but you'll get it done. And if you think about that, that's less than the commercial time in an hour of television. You know, so, and not that I recommend this, but theoretically, if, you know, when you're watching TV and it cuts to a commercial, if you only read your Bible during the time the commercials are on, <laughs> for one hour, you could cover the whole Bible, you know, and the point I'm trying to make is that even the most minimal investment into getting into God's Word can be ultra-beneficial for you, it can change who you are, it can change what you think about uh, the world, can think about life, about where you belong, about your purpose, about who God is. But the problem is, we don't take that step to find out. And the only way you're going to find out is if you take that active step of getting into God's word. So I'll leave you with this as, as Timmy comes up to uh, close us in in worship. There is a really famous story in, uh, in the Bible where Jesus takes the disciples to Caesarea Philippi, and he uh, takes them into this this area that's kind of known as the, as the Grotto of Pan, and it's this pagan temple, and it's this area that's known as the Gates of Hell. And he uh, asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they say, some say you're the Christ, some say, or some say you're John the Baptist, some say the Christ, you know, whatever. And he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus says to you, blessed are you, Simon for This hasn't been revealed to you by Uh, by man, but by my father in heaven. And he says to Peter, and you will be called Peter, which means rock, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not overcome. And it was when Peter found out who Jesus was, when he found out who God was, that's when he found out who he was, that's when he found out where he belonged, which was in the church, and he found out what his mission was. And that's the same thing that's going to be true for all of us. When you find out who Jesus is, you will find out who you are, you will find out where you belong, you will find out what your mission is. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word, that you give it as a a lamp into our feet and a light into our path, that it is something that we have as a guide, that it is something that we have to know you, Lord. And I pray that for all of us, that we would be uh, desiring to get into your word, that you would be daily reminding us how important it is and that we would ultimately come to know you in ways that would change our self-talk, change our internal dialogue about ourselves and about the world to one that reflects your dialogue about ourselves and about the world. your name.